0: What is saving faith? That'll be the subject of today's broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Join us. Depending on who you talk to, they'll tell you salvation comes to us in a variety of ways. Some will tell you all roads lead to heaven. Others will tell you it's by your good works that you get there. But what is saving faith? That's the subject of today's broadcast. We're in Luke chapter 5, looking at verses 16 through 26. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Join us for today's broadcast as we look at saving faith. Here's Gary with today's program.
1: It's not unusual, and again, I have spent several weeks on this passage, and I do not apologize this time either, because this is so fundamental to our understanding of the gospel itself, brothers and sisters. Last week, we looked at the very focus of of this incident in the life of Jesus, this healing of the paralytic that was lowered down before him through a tiled roof while he was preaching. And that focus was the forgiveness of sins. And we saw that the first thing Jesus said to this paralytic was, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And we saw the great declaration later on that teaches us that the whole purpose of this incident is that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Well, now I want us to continue to look at the focus of this incident, because it is not just the forgiveness of sins that this passage teaches us about. It is about forgiveness of sins that comes through faith in Jesus. In fact, notice the very first thing that the Lord Jesus Christ did here was to see their faith. Now, you and I can't see faith. We can certainly see its fruit, that is, the result of it. But we look upon the outward appearance of man, whereas God looks upon the heart. And only God can see real faith in the heart, and the Lord Jesus Christ sees it here, which is one of the great reasons from Scripture itself that we know that Jesus Christ is indeed God Himself. Only God can see and recognize true faith in the heart, and the Lord Jesus Christ saw true faith in the heart of the paralytic and in the four men who lowered Him into this place of worship. And our text says, because Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Now the point of the whole incident is profound as, well, as simple, which is this. It is impossible. It is impossible for a person's sins to be forgiven without faith in Jesus Christ. For evangelical Christians, that should be obvious, But it does not seem to be so obvious for many professed Christians in our day. And yet the implications of that statement are vast. It is impossible for a person's sins to be forgiven without faith in Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at the subject of forgiveness. And this week we're going to look at the subject of faith. Almost everyone professes to have faith in a God on some level. But just because a person has faith in the God on some level or to some degree does not make that person a Christian. The Bible says that demons believed and trembled, and yet the faith that demons have does them absolutely no good whatsoever. So today we're going to look at that subject, what is saving faith? That which brings the presence of God into a person's life. And with that presence of God brings forgiveness of sins. And with that forgiveness of sins, the transformation of a person's entire inner life. Many years ago, one of the great Presbyterian scholars and preachers of the 20th century wrote an outstanding book, and I highly recommend it to you. It is by J. Gresham Machen, and it is entitled, What is Faith? He began this great book with a refutation of the anti-intellectualism that had crept into Christianity, which is known by all sorts of names. They call it skepticism agnosticism, mysticism, existentialism, rationalism, subjectivism, all of which basically say, to ask the question, what is faith, is to destroy faith with doctrine. Machin proceeds to illustrate that this anti-intellectualism had caused one of the greatest weaknesses in the Christian church of his day. And I'm here to tell you, it is still alive and well in our churches in the 21st century. Machin said, anti-intellectualism tells us that the life of faith and closeness to God has to be experienced to be known. Therefore, any attempt to define or to logically analyze faith is to destroy faith's power and faith's charm." Now, there are many ways that that can be said. But it is said by a vast multitude of people in the church today. And such a statement is a manifestation of the widespread tendency in the church in America to disparage the intellectual aspect of Christian faith and life. Hence, you have the modern distaste for doctrinal theological preaching. In its place, you have the craving for warm, practical, experiential, emotionally satisfying, ascetically appealing, non-doctrinal preaching that uplifts, but which does not require the use of the mind to appreciate. And so we've seen in this century the disappearance of doctrinal preaching, and with that, the disappearance of the preaching of doctrine and theology from our pulpits, you see the cause, or at least one of the causes, of the abysmal ignorance and failure of Christians in the 20th century and the 21st century. Machen goes on. Those who discard theology and doctrine in the interest of experience are inclined to make use of a personal way of talking and thinking about God to which they have no right. What is faith? If that question were rightly answered in the church, the church would soon emerge from its present perplexities and go forth with a new joy to the conquest of the world for Christ. So we're going to study faith today. And we will find... That the church today, instead of analyzing it and searching it and trying to describe it and define it, has destroyed it, or at the very least, minimalized it. Instead, we're going to find that as we define it and analyze it, faith is enriched, and we enrich our understanding of the living God. Now, when you go to study faith, where should you go to study it? Do you go to some psychological research center in a mental hospital to speak to someone who's earned his Ph.D. by studying what faith is and all of its psychological aspects over the last past 20 years? And do you, do you read some, some professor's philosophical analysis of what it is? Well, for the Christian to even have to ask that question would be bewildering. Because, of course, it must be the Bible. The Bible is, from the beginning to the end, the textbook on the subject of faith. If you ever want to study or teach a course on faith and you're looking for a textbook, you need look no further than the Bible. It is the one and only textbook worthwhile, beloved. Anything else, even Gray, even Machen's book on faith, Is inferior. This is a book that was written to analyze and search and describe and define and distinguish saving faith from all other kinds of faith. And when we turn to the Bible, we find one very obvious fact as we study this subject of faith, and it is this faith involves a person. As its object. Always. Faith does not rest on a thing. It rests on a person. Have you ever said, I have faith in my car to get me safely where I want to go. Well, if you have, you're personifying your car, making it out to be a person. What you're really saying is, I have faith in the persons that made this car or the person who maintains my car. So whenever you talk about faith, you must realize that faith always focuses on a living person and not on a thing. And in the Bible, faith rests... Not on a doctrine, not on a law, not on a worldview, not on a promise, but faith goes beyond these things and rests upon the one who made the promise, who gives the law, that presents the worldview, that explains the doctrine. It is the living God himself, and most specifically, when we go throughout the Bible, we find that the object which true saving faith rests on is God and Jesus. Turn with me to John 17. I don't think there's any, it is any more clearly said than right here in the 17th chapter of John, beginning in verse 1. Now this is a prayer from Jesus to God the Father. And he says... These words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son may, glor- may also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that, thy might kn- that they might know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent." This is a very important verse that says God gave Jesus sovereignty over all of creation that to all of the chosen people of God He might give eternal life. And eternal life is predominantly defined not in terms of quantity, of length of time, but in quality. The richest blessing about having eternal life is not that you will live forever... But that in in this new life, you will know God personally and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the focus of faith, the object upon which our faith is to rest, according to Scripture, is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's another very important thing to remember about faith. And that is, faith in a person. Faith in a person presupposes the knowledge of that person. Faith in a person presupposes personal, first-hand knowledge of that person. You don't put your faith and confidence in someone you don't know, unless you're a fool, and that you're easily conned by every con artist coming and going. You don't put your faith and trust and confidence in someone unless you know that that person is worthy of your faith and your confidence and you come to trust him. Any faith you have in a person is based on your personal knowledge of him or her. So if we are to put our faith in God and Christ, we must know them. We must know that they are worthy of our trust And in order to know God and Jesus, there must be a revelation on God's part of Himself and His Son that is brought home to our hearts. And without the revelation of God in Scripture being driven into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we can never know God personally. We can know about Him, but it cannot be personal. And unless we know God personally, we will never, never have faith in Him. And if we don't put our faith in Him, beloved, you well know, we will perish throughout all eternity. So now, if it's true that your faith presupposes your personal, first-hand knowledge of God in Christ, as God has revealed Himself to you in Scripture by the power of His Spirit, then that means... The experience of faith and of God is based on doctrine, on theology. So without doctrine, you can never know God. And unless you know God, you can never believe. So without doctrine, you're not going to have saving faith, beloved. So you say, well, what's doctrine? Doctrine is simply revealed truth... It is teaching from the Bible that expresses various things about God and His ways of interacting with us. But you know, we have a mentality today that there's just something awful about doctrine. We don't want to hear doctrine. We want to hear warm, fuzzy things that make us feel good. But in the Bible, knowing about God, knowing whom God is, becoming personally acquainted with what God has revealed about Himself in the Bible is absolutely essential to saving faith. Saving faith is not some kind of irrational thing. Saving faith is something that believes something. Faith not only rests in trust in God... Faith believes something about God. Let me show you a verse that clarifies what I'm saying. Turn to Hebrews 11.6. The author says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now look at this verse carefully. The one who comes to God must not only believe in the person, he must also believe that something is true about that person. He must not only believe in God, he must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He must believe biblical doctrines about God. Now let me say it to you as clearly as I can. Faith involves... The acceptance of a proposition. Now, of course, that's not all there is to faith. But the Bible teaches that faith always involves the acceptance of a proposition or a creed. Like the Apostles' Creed or the Westminster Confession of Faith and shorter and larger Catechism. And where does the word creed come from? It comes from the Latin word credo which means, I believe. So when a person says, I trust in God, he also means by that, I believe certain things about God. God has revealed certain things about himself, and I believe that, which is theology, which is doctrine. I believe those doctrines. Confidence in a person is more than intellectual assent to a system of doctrine about a person. But it does of necessity, of necessity include that, beloved. Now, believing in Jesus is not just believing doctrines about Jesus found in the Bible, It obviously includes putting your confidence and faith and trust in Him. But real faith in Christ does in fact involve believing a system of doctrine taught in the Bible about the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have a negative attitude toward doctrine, I just want to believe in Jesus. I just want to have warm feelings about God. I just want to have sweet communion with my Savior. I don't want to have to be concerned with all these doctrines. It shows you don't understand what faith is at all. The Bible goes out of its way in 66 books to define faith. To tell you who this God is upon whom your faith must rest. To tell you where faith comes from. To tell you what faith looks like. How you know you have it. What it produces in your life. And if you're one of those people who says, I just don't want to know about doctrine. I just want to live a sweet Christian life. It may show, beloved, you don't have faith at all. Or if you do have faith, it is very misguided. Because every doctrine in the Bible is an avenue that leads us to the Lord Jesus Christ and lifts Him up. Every teaching of Scripture either brings Christ closer to us or brings us closer to Him. If you're going to put your confidence in God, you have got to believe certain things about God. He who comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And we could go throughout Scripture to put out many, point out many other that's about God that we are to believe. Believing doctrine is a vitally important indispensable, necessary part of faith because knowledge of God is the basis of our faith. You are not going to put your faith in someone you don't know and the only way to know God is through the revelation that God has given of himself in this book in which he has given us things that we have to believe about him. So, though faith is more than the acceptance of a creed or a confession of faith or a system of doctrine, faith does of necessity include that. And it is absolutely, vitally important for us to keep that straight in our minds. Look at Hebrews 11. Let me give you another verse that helps us with this idea of faith. Look at verse 3. I'm on purpose going to misread it, so listen carefully. By faith we believe that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Now that's the way the modern humanist or a synthetic Christian would have written this. Instead of by faith we understand. Because they believe that there is a great dichotomy between what you believe and what you know. So they say, the only thing you can know are things you are certain of. While the things you believe are the things that you may not be so certain of. But it doesn't say in verse 3, by faith we believe the worlds are prepared by God. It says, by faith we understand the creation of the universe. By faith, we understand. Now, that is important. Faith is based on the revealed knowledge of God in the Bible brought home to us, into our hearts, by the Holy Spirit. And once we have that faith in that God, we know then the whole meaning and purpose and nature of creation as it is opened up to us and for the Christian He doesn't distinguish between these things or the things I know to be fact because I have plied my reason and my experience to determine them.
0: And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, Post Mailbox, 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California,